Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. Tom Williams here. Before we get into uh, today's very interesting subject, some unfinished business from yesterday. You recall that we talked with Jonathan Choate and uh, Andy Rasmussen, who until recently were Cache County Republican Party officials. They resigned from uh, their posts and from the party over presumptive Republican Party presidential nominee Donald Trump. They just can't support him. He's antithetical to all Republican values. They're not fans of Hillary Clinton either, but uh, they, uh, they they just had problems with Donald Trump. We talked about that yesterday on the program. And Brayton tuned in to our repeat broadcast. Repeat broadcast is uh, Monday through Thursday evenings at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, this is what Braden uh, says in his email. I love the comment you made about getting out to vote for the candidate of your choice rather than choosing the lesser of two evils. I believe that was Jonathan Choate who said that. It bothers me how cynical ideas take over logical decision-making from otherwise decently intelligent people. Please mention that fact again before the show is over, that people should get out and research a candidate and vote for them. Hopefully someone who understands what you're saying won't shoot your comment down. No party affiliation, but I did vote for Bernie due to his openness about corruption and the need for restructuring of government and where all our tax dollars go. Trump is crazy and Hillary is also, says uh, Braden. Thanks and have a good rest of your night. He adds, anyway, I'd, uh, I've never emailed you guys before, but I listen every day on my way to work and on the way home. Big fan. So thanks, uh, Braden. He, he emailed back in a little bit later in the hour and said, nailed it. Very inspiring. Thanks again. So thank you to you, Braden. Thanks for listening and thanks for responding to the program. You can keep the conversation going on this extraordinary political season at upraxis.gmail.com and on our website, upr.org. Welcome now to, uh, to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nine Mile Canyon is famous the world over for its prehistoric rock art, remnants of ancient Fremont habitation. You may have heard it called the world's longest art gallery. But it also teems with Old West history, salted with iconic figures of the 19th and early 20th century. The history of Nine Mile Canyon often concerns the stories of those who came with dreams and left broke and disillusioned. In fact, the authors of this new book, Jerry Spangler and Donna Spangler, uh, say that uh, uh, they call uh, Nine Mile uh, Canyon the place where the Old West came to die. We'll uh, explore that provocative comment a little bit later in the program. Um, and uh, in this book, some who left their mark include the famed outlaw hunter Joe Bush, infamous bounty hunter Jack Watson, large-in-life cattle baron Preston Nutter, and Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy. The uh, book is Last Chance Byway, the history of Nine Mile Canyon. It's out from University of Utah Press, and we bring in the authors today. Jerry Spangler is an archaeologist and expert on prehistoric peoples of eastern Utah. He's executive director of the nonprofit Colorado Plateau Archaeological Alliance. Jerry Spangler, welcome. Thank you. And Donna Spangler is an award-winning writer, former journalist, currently communications director for Utah Department of Environmental Quality. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so let me, uh, uh, perhaps let me just start with uh, with uh, Jerry, some basics. I think a lot of people know where Nine Mile Canyon is. Um, tell us, for those who don't know, where where is it? <laughs> Uh, Nine Mile Canyon is uh, on, on the north fringe of what we call the, t- the West Tavapus Plateau, which if you're driving from uh, Price to Moab, you've noticed those cliffs uh, uh, along the left side as you're, as you're headed down US-6, the, the tower above the, uh, above the highway. Uh, Nine Mile Canyon uh, is up and over those cliffs. It's on the back side of those cliffs. So it's, uh, it, it drains into the Green River, uh, uh, just you know, just to the west of the Colorado border. And this, we'll get into this a little later in the program. But this became a, a major, I guess, freight freightway uh, from Price to, uh, I guess, to the Uinta Basin. Uh, it did. Uh, the, the that that land is so rugged and so impassable that there, uh, you know, human transportation is limited to. Uh, only a few places, and one of those natural corridors is through Nine Mile Canyon. Uh, it's, it starts out, uh, t- today the route starts out near uh, Wellington, just outside of Price, uh, proceeds uh, north and then east and then north again, and comes out uh, just west of Roosevelt. And so it's, it, it, it's about a 50-mile route. Okay, so it's not nine miles. 
<laughs> let's tackle. No, let's tackle that. I, I don't know if you, Jerry, or, or you, Donna, want to tackle that. It's why the why the name. You you have a whole section in the book about uh, about that. It's it's not nine miles. So why is it called Nine Mile Canyon? Uh, let's give the abbreviated version so we have more time to talk about the fun stuff. Uh, uh, but it's basically uh, uh, a mistake uh, made by map makers back in the eighteen. 18- Hundreds. Uh, the first reference to a canyon called Nine Mile Canyon uh, is in the uh, John Wesley Powell, uh, the, the journals of the participants of that 1871 expedition. But uh, through some of the archaeological research that, that we have done over the past 10 years, uh, we established that the Nine Mile Canyon that they were referring to it's actually located about another 35 miles to the south, a place called Rock Creek today. And then through subsequent map making, that, uh, that name got transferred uh, north uh, to the canyon that bears its name today. Um, at that time, it was, uh, it was known as, Nine Mile Canyon was actually known as Minimod Canyon mm. or Minimod Creek. Right. So, Donna Spangler, there, there, there's there's novel theories about and this. Always happens with history, right? So, there's a family, I guess, that lived there called the Mile family. There are nine of them. That was a theory for a while. Well, it, it, it is certainly a popular uh, concept. Uh, you know, I've heard that repeated for thirty years, uh, but I don't think anyone has ever taken that real serious because the canyon carried the name, uh, Nine Mile Canyon, uh, at least uh, you know, 15 to 20 years before the miles arrived. Mm-hmm. One of the fun things about researching this book is we found a lot of folklore and legends that we were hunting down, kind of like a detective, to find out whether there was any truth to this, but uh, it was an interesting process. And uh, more than once in the book, I noticed that uh, you as authors say, you'll put something forward and then you, and you say, well, we don't know if that's true because you you're you're basing this on histories, oral histories, and also some some legends, and you you, you have to sort out fact from fiction. But at the at the bottom, I, I think in in some ways that kind of doesn't matter as much. I guess talking is perhaps I, as a I believe so. I think um, what that what was what's fascinating about Nine Mile is you have um, people who have a strong uh, protection of it and and it's based on maybe their grandparents who went once homesteaded there and they have through oral history have learned different stories and interviewing you know people who you know have this deep passion for it kind of it, it you know was just as interesting as as delving through you know, the, the research and the historical documents. And, you know, that was one of the things that I really liked about um, writing the book is really getting to know the families and, and the oral histories that have been passed on. One example I found fascinating was the uh, uh, an arch, natural arch, that may or may not have been there. <laughs> right? Well, uh, yes. Uh, it, it's one of the oldest and most uh, treasured of the uh, legends of Nine Mile Canyon, there's a, there's a major side canyon called Gate Canyon. Uh, the road uh, goes down Nine Mile Canyon, and then to reach the Una Basin, it turns north and goes up this side canyon. And the legend has it that uh, there was a stone arch, and the road passed below the stone arch. Uh, and that these arches were called gates, and that's how the canyon got its name. Uh, the legend has it that the freighters were worried that the arch was going to collapse on them, and so they decided to use some dynamite and blow it up so that it would not be a, a safety hazard. Hmm. As we, uh, as we, you know, researched our various sources on that story, uh, we could not verify it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no references. Uh, in any of the journals and newspaper accounts of the day uh, to any arch in that canyon. And so we, you know, we, we had some serious questions. But by raising those questions, you're challenging uh, the fervent beliefs of the people who 
had those stories passed down from generation to generation. And, and you know, maybe it did happen, but I'm a little surprised that more if, if there was an arch and a road passes below the arch, somebody should have uh, mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we couldn't find any reference to it. There would we, have been... did find a, we did find a reference, uh, a source on the U-Tribe uh, who claims the military blew it up, uh, that it was there, but the military blew it up in a training exercise. So there are different stories, and I don't, I don't know that they, the point of our book is to dispel all the myths uh, because the myths help create the colorful fabric of the story itself. Uh, we just want to throw out other options and ideas to think about. Yeah, the, the fabric is the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, I wonder if I could have one of you read um, page six. This gets us into, uh, before we get into the uh, history of the people, um, this is a beautiful and uh, still somewhat wild place. Uh, so this particular yeah, this page the, talks uh, about the West Havaputs Plateau. West Havaputs Plateau, and uh, again, this uh, th- this is a remote region. Uh, Nine Mile Canyon is on the north edge of this plateau. So from page six, the West Havaputs Plateau is a fearsome land, part cathedral, part infernal, all of it form- formidable and defiant. It has invariably been described as dreary, desolate, and even frightening in its isolation. Country worthless, though imposing, is how Jack Sumner, a diarist on the John Wesley Powell's 1869 Colorado River Exploring Expedition, first described it. It is mostly arid, but for a few isolated springs known to every weather-beaten cattle rancher, who without exception exudes worshipful respect for the awesome powers that created such a daunting landscape. By and large, the West Havaputs Plateau has defied human attempts to tame it. As such, it remains one of the last great wildernesses in North America, brushed only by a cadre of river adventurers floating the Green River along the eastern boundary and weekend motorists who traverse the Nine Mile Canyon Road, now paved, that skirts its northern periphery. So uh, the the last great wilderness in, in North America, that's, that's a bold statement. And this is right here in, in Utah. It's one of them. Uh-huh. It's one of them. I mean, Alaska certainly has uh, has many, uh, but in terms of the lower 48, it's uh, I mean it's it's hundreds and hundreds of square miles of untamed wilderness, and one of the true wilderness treasures in, in North America. And what I find interesting interesting is that even though the road is now paved you still get a sense that you're completely isolated from, uh, you know, nearby towns um, because you don't have typically, unless it's a, a, a weekend where a tourist is bringing uh, people out to explore the rock art, you, you, you tend to still feel that, that intense isolation. And I think that's one of the rare experiences we have these days. Now, what do you, and you write about this in the book, what what are you likely to experience when you go out there today? I guess you'll have a few people coming through to, to see the prehistoric rock art. You'll have some <laughs> trucks going through, right? There's some natural gas uh, up in the up in the plateau, but, but otherwise pretty, I guess, pretty isolated. You have the place kind of to yourself? It, it's, a, it's a very quiet place uh, today with... Uh, with natural grass prices the way they are, there's not that much development going on in there. And uh, it, it's actually quite uh, a quiet refuge. Uh, the, the, the paving of the road has resulted in more people being able to go in and look at the ancient rock art. Um, you can get in there now in any passenger vehicle, where that was not the case 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, but it still retains uh, a sense of quiet, and, and peacefulness, and uh, I think as we wrote somewhere in the book, uh, you know, there's there's ample opportunity to listen to the ghosts of the past. Uh, so, uh, just curious, what uh, took you out there? So, Jerry, was it archaeology? It was archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, in the late eight, uh, late 1980s. I'm not I'm not that old. Let's say, <laughs> uh, in late 1980s, I I did my graduate work in archaeology down there. And fell in love with the canyon, and have been uh, researching it 
ever since. It's going on 30 years I've been conducting research. Much of the material in the book uh, resulted from the historical research that evolved out of the archaeological research. Mm-hmm. And uh, Donna Spangler, what, what took you out there? Well, Jerry Spangler. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, no, uh, he actually introduced me to the canyon. I was uh, uh, working as a newspaper reporter for the Deseret News, and he was uh, taking me at a place where he did his archaeological research, and I was just taken aback by just the sense of um, wonder of it all, uh, the fact that there still exists these, you know, wild places and 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 green, and it's not like the desert where it's, um, you know, uh, rough and barren, but you have just a tapestry of different types of terrain. And, um, you know, he started pointing me out to all of these archaeological sites, and I just found it just amazing and just uh, been doing it ever since. And so, you know, about... 20 years ago when the road wasn't paved, it was a little bit more treacherous to get into it, but, um, and that kind of, you know, discouraged the frequent visitor, but um, it's it's still an amazing place, and and sometimes I hearken back when the road wasn't paved so that, you know, you, you invariably are among the only ones in there. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with uh, Jerry and Donna Spangler. They're authors of a new book called Last Chance Byway, The History of Nine Mile Canyon. And uh, we're going to take a break here pretty soon. I want to get in uh, an email from Glenn in the Uinta Basin. Uh, It's very apropos. It's coming right here. You just talked about the road and improving the road. Glenn says, hello, I can tell already that I need to buy this book. I spent my life living in very close proximity to the area. I have spent a lot of time there, both uh, through work and leisure. I'd like to get the author's take on the most recent, quote-unquote, improvements to the road by paving it. I think the dust control was good, but I do know that some more recent artifacts were bulldozed in order to accommodate a straighter right-of-way. That's uh, Glenn. Um, So the the improvements uh, to to the road, there's something lost there, I guess something gained. Well, uh, uh, Glenn's absolutely correct. Uh, the, the improvements to the road are ongoing. In fact, uh, uh, there is an environmental uh, uh, impact statement process, uh, EA or EIS, I'm not sure which, uh, to uh, to pave the last portion of Gate Canyon. There's, a, there's about a five, seven-mile section of that canyon the steepest portion where it twists and turns up out of the bottom of Nine Mile out onto the, the top of the plateau. And that proposal to pave that last section is open for public review. Well, the the paving of that road to make it safer for uh, vehicle traffic will result in the loss of several um, panels of historic inscriptions. Uh, you just, you know, we mentioned earlier the uh, the freight road the people that would travel this freight road in the 1800s and the early 1900s would leave their names on these canyon walls, names and dates. Well, some of those are going to be lost when that road is straightened and made more passable. It's being it's being improved specifically for uh, you know modern freight traffic, oil and gas traffic, uh, semi trucks. Uh, yes, it will make it safer. That's the trade-off: is you have a safe road. It'll be safe for all visitors, not just the oil and gas industry. The the downside is, with each improvement, we lose a piece of the past, and that that's a non-renewable resource. We mm. can never get that back. And that uh, boy, that that's I guess could be said of uh, of a lot of the arguments we have going on in the West. And improvements that are improvements, but you know, you lose a piece of the past. Uh, let's take a break, and when we come back, more with uh, Jerry Spangler and Donna Spangler. Last chance, by we'll get into uh, some of the, uh, the the colorful characters. This was a, a, a and uh, mostly what is uh, covered in the book. A lot of what's covered in the book is a uh, about a 50-year period where the authors write that the, this area, Nine Mile Canyon, now kind of remote and, and lonely, uh, was perhaps the most vibrant economic area in uh, rural Utah. Had a real heyday. And then, then it was over quickly. 
and we'll talk about uh, uh, some of the, uh, the the characters there more following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. The idea of emotional intelligence is one of the most important management concepts of the last 25 years. No longer do we ask our leaders to be the smartest person in the room, but we ask them to be self-aware, socially skilled, and empathetic. Empathetic often means dealing with cultural differences. Cultural differences abound in the global work environment. And being able to cross cultural boundaries and do business with people who are different is not only emotionally intelligent, but it's essential in today's workplace. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean, continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about Nine Mile Canyon. It's famous the world over for its prehistoric rock art and remnants of ancient Fremont habitation, but it also teems with Old West history, solved with iconic figures of the 19th and early 20th century. Last Chance Byway tells the stories of human endeavor and folly in a place historians have long ignored. Uh, so uh, this uh, corrects that uh, that gap in history. At least is an attempt to do that. Last Chance Byway, The History of Nine Mile Canyons is the name of the book. It's out from University of Utah Press. We have with us the authors, uh, Donna Spangler and uh, Jerry uh, Spangler. Uh, so, of course, I think people know uh, about the, the Fremont uh, rock art. Um, let's, let's jump forward, though, to that's where you spend most of the time in your book. Um, there was a time when Nine Mile Canyon was, as you write in the book, perhaps the most vibrant economy in rural Utah, well, it was uh, it was certainly one of the most heavily traveled roads anywhere in rural Utah. Uh, there were um, uh, to, to, just to set the stage, uh, you had the arrival of the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad uh, through uh, the Price area uh, in the 1880s. And that was the rival railroad to the Union Pacific, which we all uh, uh, know about from Golden Spike and, uh, and the TV show Hell on Wheels. But the, the rival uh, Denver-Rio Grande was seen as an economic savior to much of Utah because it uh, provided competition and lowered prices. And one of the uh, advantages of lower prices was to the U.S. military, which... Uh, had a military installation that it was constructing, uh, now known as Fort Duchesne, in the Uinta Basin. Well, they had to be able to get supplies uh, to that military installation, as well as the annual annuities that were promised to uh, the Ute tribal members. And so the route was established uh, as a freight route in 1886, uh, and traffic on that began in earnest in 1887. What caused the real boom, though, was the development at the exact same time of a hydrocarbon uh, in, found only in the Uinta Basin called gilsonite. And what that allowed these freighters to do was transport military goods uh, north to the Uinta Basin and then return uh, to the railheads at price uh, with uh, a load of gilsonite. So they could get paid both ways. And we're, we're talking about thousands of trips a year. And so uh, one of the historians that we work with on this, uh, you know, estimated that there were as many as 50 Teamsters on the road uh, at any one time, uh, basically 365 days a year. And there was, there was constant uh, movement of traffic uh, back and forth uh, between the Uinta Basin and the railheads of Price. Hmm. The, uh, the military contracts alone um, uh, was over 2 million pounds a year of supplies going oh, wow. to the Uinta Basin. And several times that amount of Gilsonite coming back in return. So the demand for freighters uh, far exceeded the, uh, the number of uh, freighting operations that there, there were. And so 
everybody got into the freighting business. Everybody in Price was involved in one way or another. Everyone in the Uinta Basin was involved in one way or another. It was the economic lifeblood of eastern Utah. Let me, um, I, I'm aware of Gilsonite. I grew up in the Uinta Basin, grew up in Vertel. And on a school trip, we went out to a Gilsonite mine uh, near Bonanza, I believe it was. I'm still unclear what Gilsonite is. It's a hydrocarbon, I guess? It's a hydrocarbon. It's uh, The way we describe it in the book is it's like halfway between uh, coal and oil. Uh, it's lightweight. It's shiny. Uh, it's a solid, but it melts uh, quickly. And so it can become a liquid fairly uh you know, with, with a small amount of, of heat. And it was used in the 1800s uh, for a variety of purposes, paints, uh, as a road base mix, uh, as a sealant. Uh, one of the uh, earliest applications of it was to uh, coat the, the, the pylons at the, the salt air resort uh, so they wouldn't erode in the salt water. So it was a, had an anti-corrosive effect to it. It had a, multiple uses. One of the curious things about it is just when they went, when one use would would wane, they would find some other use for yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And so the life of the Gilsonite boom actually was from about 1886 all the way into the 1920s. Yeah. Uh, they still produce Gilsonite to this day, but uh, the demand is not what it was during that heyday. Okay. And this is named, is, is this named after an actual man, is named after Sam Gilson? Yes, it's named after Sam Gilson, which is probably my favorite character in the book. He's one of the, the real figures of Utah history that has been forgotten and ignored, and probably one of the most colorful characters, uh, you know, in the early Utah history. He was a non-Mormon uh, living among Mormons. He had one of the first ranchers in the Nephi area down in Juab County, uh, established the first ranch in Emory County, uh, 1876, and uh, would have been probably forgotten as, as just uh, another rancher if he hadn't decided to do something else, and that was become a U.S. Marshal uh, during the anti-polygamy uh, crusades, uh, first in the 1870s and then again in the 1880s. And he became a most aggressive enforcer of federal law and earned the, the wrath of the LDS Church. Uh, one of the great tools available to us in writing this book is what's called Utah Digital Newspapers, where we're able to go through and uh, search all of the early newspaper publications in Utah uh, for any year, any particular period of time, and by name. And we were able to search out all references to Sam Gilson. And the, uh, the LDS Church just vilified him. He was the personification of the, uh, the campaign against uh, the, the Utah polygamists. Um, but his true love was, was mining, and he, um, uh, th- there's not enough hours in this uh, program or in this day to discuss all the machinations behind uh, how he locked up all the Gilsonite um, hmm. uh, claims out in the Uinta Basin. But it was there was a uh, bribery, corruption, all of that was involved, and he he and a partner, Bert Seabolt. Uh, basically locked up all the richest uh, Gilsonite veins, had a monopoly on it. Within two years, uh, they had sold the company uh, to uh, a, a company well-known to, to many today, uh, uh, you know, the, the, Bush, the Bush Brewing Company uh, mm. bought, bought them out. But part of the buyout... As the legend goes, is Sam Gilson paid a silver dollar to the new company if they would retain uh, his name on the new company. Oh, I so see. That, yeah. And so hmm. Gilsonite is actually a trademark name, uh, and it's based on Sam Gilson, uh, but it, it's the actual name of the ore is is something different, but. Everyone refers to it as Gilsonite. Yeah, including to to today, or at least you know when, when I was growing up, we 
there, there's still you know a mine or two out there. Uh, I wonder, uh, Donald Spengler, who, uh, who's the character that stands out to you the the most in the, the <laughs> history? Well, a lot to choose well, from. Well, you, you know, I, I do, I do really enjoy the whole outlaw period. Um, you know, I, of course, there's the Nutter, um, Preston Nutter. He seems to be a central character and is drawn by all of these. Um, surrounding characters that he comes to deal with. But, you know, of course, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. I mean, one of the things that's intriguing to me is how um, it, you had these people who were powerful, like Preston Nutter, who um, these, you know, outlaws would actually find uh, respite with them because there was sort of this culture of the West that, the relationships the outlaws had with the ranchers is that you, you know, it was kind of an ethic. You wouldn't steal from those people who you worked for. And so actually Preston Nutter would hire some of these people to sort of, because he could trust them that, you know, they may steal from others, but they weren't going to steal from him. And it was, it's just an interesting kind of code of ethics. So I would have to say that period of, of Preston Nutter and, and the Wild Bunch and things like that held my interest and, and is still intriguing to me. Preston Nutter is a fascinating character. Um, he is a young man with burning ambition. He did make good. Uh, there's, there's, I guess, different views of him. Some say he was a man of integrity. Others say he did cut corners to, you know, to get rich. Um, uh, uh, tell me about this. Is you couldn't make this up? A young Preston Nutter testified against Alfred Packer in, oh, in yeah. his in his trials. Yes, yeah, the, uh, the the famous uh, cannibal. <laughs> yes. And, uh, um, you know, for those who might not know the story, uh, Alfred Packer was uh, was convicted in Colorado um, of uh, killing and eating his companions uh, during a, a harsh winter episode on their way to the, the Colorado gold and silver mines. And Preston Nutter was actually part of that expedition, but was not with uh, the group that was eaten. And uh, was on two occasions was the primary witness against Alfred Packard uh, that that got him convicted for for those crimes. That uh, interestingly enough, uh, Preston Nutter. There there is a contingency of conspiracy theorists out there that believes Alfred Packard was wrongly convicted, and they blame Preston Nutter for that conviction. I might add that the uh, the cafeteria at the University of Colorado is named the Alfred Packard Cafeteria. <laughs> at the University of Colorado, I, I had heard that there's a cafeteria somewhere, so it's the University of Colorado. Uh, the droll, droll uh, humor there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you could just, you, I, I visualized this as you recounted this in the book. Uh, Alfred Packard came out of the mountains um, looking pretty good after that, that winter. That, uh, yeah. That raised suspicions. Uh, well fed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I believe he was his sentence of so death sentence was commuted, but then he later was convicted and spent a stretch in prison. But it was it was young Preston Nutter who who was instrumental, I guess, uh, as testifying against yeah, him. Yeah, the 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 ex- Preston Nutter uh, had met up with this group of miners at the at the Bingham Mine, uh, you know, south of Salt Lake, and there was a gold fever going on. Everyone was wanting to rush to the the San Juan Mountains in Colorado and, and mine gold and silver. And so Preston Nutter threw in with this group of guys, and, and Alfred Packer claimed to know the country and was going to guide them. And by Preston Nutter's own accounts, uh, Packer was a complete fraud, did not know the country, uh, got them lost, and they arrived in western Colorado very late in the year. And they ran into a group of uh, Ute Indians uh, who advised them not to try to cross the uh, the San Juan Mountains. It was too late in the year. About half of them stayed uh, with Chief Oray and his wife, Chipia, uh, for the winter. And the other half decided to go ahead and try to cross the mountains and get to the gold fields. Uh, Preston Nutter was in the group that stayed behind with, with Chief Ore. And the the sidelight is spending that winter with Chief Ore. Uh, Nutter uh, developed a very good relationship 
tribe that would later uh, greatly influence uh, his success as a businessman. He would later get the uh, the beef contracts uh, for the Ute Reservation, which made him quite wealthy as, as mm. a cattle rancher. Um, but the group that had split off and tried to cross the mountains, only one man came out, and that was Alfred Packard. Yeah. The others were all found uh, butchered. Uh, I found this statement interesting. That there's, uh, in the book, unique settlement pattern here in Nine Mile Canyon. Uh, for example, it never had a branch of the LDS church. There were LDS people there, but it is unique in that way. It wasn't settled, I guess not unique in this way, but, but unusual, in that it wasn't settled in the kind of the usual Mormon way. Uh, that, that's true, uh, but, I, but I have to qualify that because uh, I was interviewing a, a good friend of mine, um, Norma Dalton, one of the last uh, survivors of the original uh, Nine Mile Canyon uh, settlers, and uh, she she gave me a uh, an oral history that had been taken some time back of a of a different fellow, and she said. The church tried to establish uh, a branch out there, but nobody came to church. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they, they tried. They tried. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I could just share with you, uh, to your point here, it's, it's, it's the last paragraph of our book. Okay. And, uh, let me just read it to you, because I think it goes right at your question. Most of all, the period of time considered here marked an era when men and women established their own community on their own terms and in their own way. It was far removed from civilization. And here, a Mormon was free to chew tobacco, and a non-Mormon was unfettered by theocratic rules and regulations. Sure, there were codes almost everyone lived by, honor, courage, hard work. But there were no zoning laws, no environmental laws, no paperwork, and success or failure was determined by sheer will, the embodiment of the Old West. Those days are long gone. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, a interesting place, very interesting place, unique in, in many ways. Let's take another break when we come back more with Jerry uh, Spangler and Donna Spangler, authors of Last Chance Byway, The History of Nine Mile Canyon. It's out from University of Utah Press. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at UPR Access. We have another comment from um, Glenn in the Uona Basin. He's uh, going to tell us a little bit more about Guild tonight. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Glenn. We'll get that following the break. And I want to ask uh, our authors, they say that uh, Nine Mile Canyon was the place, they described it as the place where the Old West came to die. I want to uh, explore that a little more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the musicals Mary Poppins, The Coconuts, and Murder for Two as part of the 2016 season in Cedar City. Information at bard.org. Next time on Living on Earth, how ancestral Americans and the food they grew helped spread a vital pollinator. Squash, pumpkin, uh, zucchini, all of those crops, they are all pollinated by these squash bees. I'm Steve Kerwood, Humans and the Squash Bee, next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're pleased to have the authors of very interesting new books out from University of Utah Press. Title is Last Chance Byway. Subtitled The History of Nine Mile Canyon. We have with us Donna Spangler and Jerry Spangler. You're welcome to join the program. Love to get your experiences. Perhaps you've explored Nine Mile Canyon uh, at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at UPR Access. Here's what uh, Glenn says. We were talking about gildsonite earlier. Gildsonite, he says, is created when oil seeps up through cracks in the Earth's crust, and then the lighter hydrocarbons evaporate away or have been broken down through biological processes. Henry Ford used it to paint his earliest automobiles. That's why they were all black at the beginning. So thanks for that, Glenn. Interesting to, uh, you know, and I've, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that, of that history. 
uh, guild tonight. And I, I was only aware of the word even uh, because uh, I'm from the Una Basin. Uh, so let me ask you, uh, Donna Spangler and Jerry Spangler, you you called Nine Mile Canyon the place where the Old West came to die. Why why did you say that? Well, I think it's because when you think of the Old West, you think of uh, unfettered laws. You know, not, there was there wasn't any. You know, you could you know every you can settle and you didn't have to you know it was free range and you know people were kind of you know real independent and as long as you worked hard and and um, you know you could get by. But I, I think it's it's really summed up best on um, page two seventy one where we kind of sum up, you know, why do we say nine mile canyon is a place the old west came to die? Quite simply, everything about its brief history is a metaphor for the past colliding with an industrialized, urbanized present. So here we have, you know, the era of the cattle baron ended here with Preston Nutter, you know, who died in 1936 as the Taylor Grazing Act put an end to overgrazing. You know, the era of free land ended here with modifications to the Homestead Act that required squatters to secure legal rights to their farms and ranches. The opening of reservation lands in the Uinta Basin to homesteaders marked the last great American land rush, but unfortunately not the last disenfranchised of American Indians. So, you know, you can go on and go on. The development of the Giltonite uh, deposits in the Uinta Basin, the outlaws who operated here in the 1890s um, were the last of a breed. So, again, this is kind of sums up just sort of the tail end of, of the Old West and uh, kind of an entrance of a new era of laws and, you know, society and things like that. And the 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 heyday, that uh, some 50-year period beginning in the uh, 1880s, uh, the heyday of Nine Mile Canyon came to an end pretty quickly, didn't it? It was a boom, and then it was a pretty quick decline. There was there was two events uh, that occurred almost simultaneously that, that were the final nails in the coffin. It uh, I think is this word is uh, somewhere in the book. Uh, it, it probably started dying as soon as the route was built because it was never a very good route in the first place. Uh, then with the amount of traffic on it, it was a constant traffic jam. And so the developers of, of Gilsonite, uh, they set about to build what's called the Uinter Railway. And it was a... Uh, it was a spur line out of Mack, Colorado, down by Grand Junction, up over the East Tavaputs Plateau uh, to that area that you're probably familiar with, uh, uh, Dragon, uh, in that right, area. Right, right, yeah. And so by having rail access, you uh, greatly reduce, if not eliminated, the need for overland transport in wagons. And at the same time, the state of Utah... Uh, was deciding how to connect the Uinta Basin uh, to the south. We are, they already had uh, what is now US-40 that went up over to Park City and Salt Lake that way, but they wanted a route south. And so different groups were lobbying for the new highway, and, and it was broadly assumed it was going to be Nine Mile Canyon. That was the established route. Well, the, uh, the folks in... Uh, in Duchesne, uh, which at the time was called Theodore, uh, did an amazing lobbying job on, uh, uh, on, on the state legislature at that time. And the uh, state legislature chose a different route, a much more difficult route, uh, which is Indian Canyon, which is Highway 191 today. And it... Uh, if you if you go to Duchesne, it's the highway that goes uh, south directly out of Duchesne, up over uh, the high country, and comes out uh, just above Helper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the choice of that route eliminated any need for vehicle traffic in Nine Mile Canyon. So not only did they lose the freight traffic to the railroad, they lost the vehicle traffic. And there was no real reason to maintain the Nine Mile Road, and it fell into uh, disuse and uh, with with minimal maintenance uh, over the years. Yeah, this was especially fascinating to me. I've traveled in Indian Canyon a lot, um, and you know, Nine Mile Canyon 
just a little further away is is kind of a, travels a similar route. In fact, in the book you say uh, there was a contractor apparently so uh, sure that the the route was going to be Nine Mile Canyon that he staged equipment there. That's and uh, he, yeah, he he lost he, out big time. He went into uh, a vast amount of debt buying up equipment to build the road and had it all staged in Nine Mile. Uh, convinced everyone was convinced it was going to be Nine Mile. And it turns out it wasn't, and their contractor went broke. And as you drive the canyon today, uh, right across the road from the uh, from the stone cabin that is really the 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 only really intact stone cabin anywhere in the canyon, you'll see a bunch of rusted out equipment. That's the equipment that uh, has been sitting there uh, for for a hundred years now, mm. um, kind of. Uh, in itself, a, a metaphor of busted dreams. Yeah. Somebody thought they were going to get rich mm-hmm. building this this highway, and it never happened. And there are a lot of people in Nine Mile Canyon that uh, you know that their dreams did uh, did die. A lot of people very resilient as well, and and, and stuck it out. Uh, so uh, another thing you just mentioned it. Uh, Duchesne used to be called Theodore, so I guess it is in the Unit Basin. As you traveled east, you get to Theodore and then Roosevelt. Yes. <laughs> okay. And then it was renamed Duchesne. Yeah, you learn learn a lot of things. Um, just have about five minutes left. I want to um, Donna Spangler. Uh, uh, this was very interesting. This is uh, chapter nine. Just want to read this. Little. This is the beginning of the chapter. This is Mildred Miles Dillman from 1948. Uh, if one believed all that was told, ghosts could be seen walking every night up the road, driving the women crazy. Wells were filled with dead men and built over to conceal their secrets. That's pretty intriguing. <laughs> Yes, very much. Uh, What's interesting about uh, Dillman is that you can still find her initials in the canyons, uh, some you know, at some special areas, and so you know that uh, she was quite, uh, you know, a a person who was very uh, well known, and um, you know, I I mean, I, I would, I would love to be able to. To find a little bit more about her, but uh, she was she's interesting. Yeah, a lot one of, of the uh, one of the stories I like to to tell, uh, and, and we hint at it in the book, is the, her references to the ghosts in the canyon. Is uh, there there is a very prominent legend of the ghost of a fellow who supposedly committed uh, who had his throat cut, and as the story goes, uh, it was a self-inflicted wound. And it's been a legend, but we were able to go in and demonstrate uh, who it was that actually committed suicide by cutting their own throat. And I uh, and his identity has been well protected by the Canyon residents that didn't want to uh, cause shame on 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 his family, which still resides in the area. Oh, interesting. So yeah. there are ghosts there. There are lots of stories of of. You know, of, of malfeasance, of corruption, of murder—it's—it's it's got all the good stories. I want to—I want to get this in. This is uh, just uh, this is just very juicy. Well, let me set this up by reading the the head of uh, the chapter titled "Hellfire and Gunplay: Law and Lawlessness." This is Butch Cassidy to Gunplay Maxwell, 1897. You ain't a bad man. You're just a petty larceny horse thief. I'll give you five seconds to get going. Otherwise, there'll be a funeral in Vernal, and you will be riding at the head of the procession. So I wanted to get to uh, apparently Butch Cassidy was able to uh, to be present at his own funeral procession. Yeah, that that story was first told uh, by in uh, the book by uh, Butch Cassidy's sister. And what was interesting in doing the research for this book is we actually found a family where that story has been handed down that it was their ancestor who. Uh, uh, loading him up, hit him in the the hay of wagon, and uh, the quote, uh, uh, you know, I always wanted to attend my own funeral once, uh, is actually was handed down in that family history. And so it actually gives credence to uh, a story that was uh, mentioned years and years ago, uh, and it actually puts the names behind the uh, the people who were, we're helping Butch at the time. Hmm. Yeah, Posse got it wrong. They 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 shot up some some people in their bedrolls, 
And uh, the, the word got out that one of them was Butch Cassidy. It didn't turn out to be. So he was able to, I think it was in Price, right? He was able to. In Price, yeah. yeah. To see his own funeral or, you know, be a part of it. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I wondered, uh, m- maybe with each of you, uh, starting with Donna, what what do you take away now that having jumped into this this history of Nine Mile Canyon? Well, I think that uh, I think Jerry probably mentioned this earlier. That seems to sum it up: is that you know Nine Mile is a pretty spectacular place, not just from its scenery, but from the people who actually you know lived there and were touched by it whether they were part of the railroad um, or the freighters or, you know, the farming or their ancestors lived there. I mean, it's just a pretty amazing place. And and getting to know the stories and the history has just really been one of the most fascinating things I've been able to experience. And I I hope that it continues on, and I, I hope it's still one of the last places that we have intact that isn't destroyed. Uh, Jerry Spangler, I'll give you the last word here. Um, I, I'm just uh, want to give uh, you know a shout out to all the people that helped us put this book together. Uh, there were so many historians that just opened their their files to us. Uh, Joel Franson was an amazing resource on the outlaw history, and and uh, unfortunately he passed away before the book uh, actually was published. Um, you know Gary Weeks on the on the military history of that region. We couldn't have done this book without these other historians. The history has always been there in bits and snippets that that very qualified historians have put together. And what we did is is we took all of what they had done and put it together. And hopefully by publishing this book, we'll foster a greater appreciation of the of the history of that remarkable place. And maybe, just maybe, uh, it will last a little bit longer. We will lose a little bit less of it as time goes on because there will be a greater appreciation for what's actually left there. Well, the book is Last Chance Byway, The History of Nine Mile Canyon. Donna Spangler and Jerry Spangler are the authors. It's out from University of Utah Press. Uh, Jerry and Donna Spangler, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And I hope you'll join me tomorrow. A very interesting film has uh, been released. Uh, it's called Sonic Sea. And uh, here's their tagline. Oceans are a sonic symphony. Sound is essential to the survival and prosperity of marine life. But man-made ocean noise is threatening this fragile world. We'll hear some clips from the film. We'll talk with the director and a uh, marine biologist. Sonic Sea, that's tomorrow. hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahumanities.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, everybody's always in search of great new ideas, but how about killing off the old ideas that stand in the way of progress? This is an idea that makes no sense. And the idea that I believe is ready to retire is, I think, an idea that is really bad, that's detrimental to society. Ideas whose time have come. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. The Music of Strangers is a new documentary about cellist Yo-Yo Ma and his global Silk Road Ensemble. Next time on Q, director Morgan Neville will talk about their mission to foster cultural understanding through music. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio.